Uh, I am stoked for this time of year, this building of anticipation and longing for the coming of Jesus. We're in the fourth week of Advent, the season of self-reflection and preparation, getting in touch with our longing for healing and new life and new creation that Jesus promised to bring in the new creation. And we've been rooted in the Gospel of Mark this whole Advent season. And I've been walking us through particularly the prologue of Mark, which is the first 15 verses of Mark's Gospel. And it introduces the good news of Jesus. Each Sunday has been building on the one before it in like content and depth and theology. And so what I'm going to do, just in case you're visiting with us or you forgot, I, sometimes I forget, forget the, the details of even my own sermons from a couple weeks ago. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the beginning of the Gospel of Mark and get us caught up to speed with where we've been, and then I'll take us to the next level. Um, just to kind of get the blood flowing and everything, let's stand for the reading of the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to just read the first 11 verses to get us going. The beginning of the gospel, which remember we learned means good news, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to stoop down and to untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in those days, Jesus from Nazareth came into Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately... Coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Lord, thank you for this good word. Thank you for its hope and its promise and the person to whom it points to you, Lord Jesus. As we explore what comes next, would you open our minds, open our hearts, release faith for us to trust you more deeply, to love you more fully. Amen. You may be seated. So that text that I just read, we did, we've done now three sermons on it. And that first week, we focused on the promise of God's redemption coming to pass at the advent or the coming of Jesus. Then in the second week, we focused on John the Baptist and how he calls people to prepare for the coming of God, to reflect on our allegiances in life, the way that we use our minds, the way that we use our hearts, the way that we use our resources. 
And last week, we were confronted with the primacy or the focus on Jesus. He's presented in the Gospel of Mark as God come in the flesh, the Son of God, the Savior from God. Which brings us in this moment to the next part of the text, which is Mark 1, 12 and 13. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by the Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I've mentioned a few times in this series how the Gospel of Mark is an Advent text, but it's different from the others. Unlike the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we don't get any stories about shepherds or Mary or Joseph. We never hear about Elizabeth and Zechariah, Gabriel, or angel choirs serenading shepherds out in the fields at night. But what Mark lacks in nativity stories, he makes up in his craft as a storyteller. It is the way that Mark tells the story of Jesus that is almost as theologically rich as the story itself. Have you ever seen those optical illusions where one picture actually has two interpretations to it that can both be true at the same time? Sophia's gonna throw up an optical illusion up here. Uh, So is the guy looking at us or is he looking to the side? It's profile, right? And you can interpret that as both being true. Yes, he's looking at me, which is really creepy. Can you go to the next one? Um, And he's looking at the side. Now, this is the classic, is it the young woman looking far away, or is it an up-close of an older woman looking down? Um, Do you see that one? Okay. The chin of the young woman is the nose of the, the older woman, see? And my point in showing us these, these are called ambiguous illusions, meaning that they're both true. It is both the young woman looking away and the older woman looking down. It is both the man looking at us and the profile of the man looking to the side. They're ambiguous illusions because both aspects are true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have versions of the story that I just read where Jesus is sent out into the wilderness and he undergoes some sort of testing or temptation by the Satan. And in Matthew and Luke, we learn a lot more about what is said between those two and what the outcome of that temptation actually is. But Mark isn't giving us a blow-by-blow dialogue of that historical event. And instead, Mark gives us some details that Matthew and Luke don't give us. For example, those other two accounts don't mention the wild beasts. And Mark's version is, by a long shot, the shortest and most succinct. It's just two verses. By leaving the story, this account of Jesus going into the wilderness, confronting Satan for 40 days, by leaving it ambiguous, Mark is opening it up to multiple interpretations that, like those illusions, can both be true. And in fact, what I'm going to argue is that there are three interpretations that are all three true and actually build on each other. 
So let's take a look at the text in a little more detail before I get to my three sort of interpretations of that text and, and just hear the nuances of what Mark is saying. So Jesus is baptized in, in the story right before this one. In this amazing moment, he comes up out of the water and you can almost picture it in your mind like some kind of the thing is happening. So Jesus comes out of the water and a dove from heaven like the Holy Spirit comes and alights on him and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's just, oh my, this is amazing. This is the moment theologically rich, right? We've got the Trinity represented right there. We've got the, the declaration that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. but he doesn't like go to a throne and people don't fall down on their knees around him and halos don't go around his head. What happens next is that he's cast out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit impels him to go. And if I were to translate this sentence from the Greek into wooden, like literal English, here's how it would read. It would read something like, immediately, the Spirit throws Jesus into the wilderness. That word for impel or send out is ek balo. Balo means to throw. Ek means away from, so to throw away. The Spirit of God throws Jesus into the wilderness. Doesn't really throw him, but you know what I mean. Sends him out with that kind of force into the wilderness. And the idea is that God the Holy Spirit has sent God the Son into the wilderness. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's all sort of ambiguous. So let's consider how an ancient Israelite and a person from a Mediterranean culture in the first century, let's consider how that type of person would interpret the wilderness. So Sophia's going to put a slide up here. And on the one hand, the wilderness is dangerous. Like, there's all kinds of writings about how people feel about the wilderness, and a lot of them say, this is a place that you should tread lightly, that you should go together, you should not go alone. It's a dangerous place. A person like Jesus going in the wilderness is alone, cut off from community and protection in the wilderness places. So I think you're going to do alone, right? And then the second one is there are wild animals Beasts in the wilderness. That's what Mark's text says. In that time and place, for example, we know that there were leopards, bears, lions, and jackals in that part of Palestine in the wilderness. That doesn't even include all the creepy stuff like snakes and spiders and maybe scorpions. Ugh. Scarcity. The wilderness can represent scarcity, lack of resources, possibly lack of water. Like, Jesus wasn't pulling his RV into the wilderness to glamp. Like, he's going out probably with not much. And there's always the question when you go in the wilderness, like, will there be resources for me? Food, water, shelter. Demonic activity. Ancient people have written a lot about where they thought demons like to hang out. Here's an interesting one. They like bathhouses. I don't know what goes on in there, but anyway, bathhouses, um, graveyards, temples, especially pagan temples, and the wilderness. 
Lots written about what, and St. Anthony in the desert goes out and writes a ton of stuff about confrontation with demonic powers in the wilderness. And, of course, the Satan. The Satan. We've talked about him before in our Job sermon a few weeks ago. Um, it's more of a title or a, uh, a, a, a designation than it is a proper name. Like there's not a dude named Satan, but it's the Satan, uh, the, the accuser. He's sort of like a prosecutor or a, 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 a celestial critic. The Satan in scripture is never, not even close, um, equal to God in power or authority in any way, shape, or form. He is, for all his malevolence, under God's sovereign control. And he will ultimately pay for all of his misdeeds. And in the meantime, God somehow works the Satan into his plans. And it's all mysterious, and we can have coffee or pints over it if you want to talk about it more. It's just a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. But, so the Satan is out there, and he's associated with the wilderness, with his demon buddies, scarcity of resources, dangerous animals, alone and vulnerable. It could be a dangerous place to go in the wilderness. And the Spirit throws Jesus into the wilderness. But there's another column. You can see my, I left room on the other side. So, Sophia, let's put up the next one. The wilderness can be seen as holy in ancient writings and in ancient thought. It's a place for silence and solitude, to get away from distractions, to get close to God. John Chrysostom, writing in the fourth century, writes, for the wilderness is the mother of quiet. It is a calm harbor delivering us from turmoils. The wilderness can be seen as a place of communion with creation, a place of getting in touch with nature and the good created order that God has made. And what about those animals? Well, Mark leaves that ambiguous. Yes, he says Jesus is with the wild beasts, but he doesn't say that the an uh, animals were dangerous to Jesus or that Jesus was scared by the animals. Rather, he says that Jesus was meta, was with the animals. And that could easily be interpreted as Jesus is in harmony with the animals, like harmony with creation. The wilderness is a place for holy simplicity. While the wilderness can be a place of scarcity, it can also be a place where one would go to intentionally strip away the distractions of common life. I mean, it's the reason so many of us like to go camping. And just because Jesus didn't have iPhones and computers and to-do lists, I mean, doesn't mean his life and the people in for the first century, doesn't mean their life wasn't complicated. Because anytime we get into a rut of behaviors and the same old thing, it's nice to unplug and to get off that treadmill and to do something different. And ancient people saw the value of going into the holy wilderness. The wilderness is a place of angelic assistance, uh, not only in the stories of Jesus, but also uh, to, uh, to others in, in the Bible and in uh, first century writings. We've got, again, Anthony of the Desert going out and, and being encountering angelic supporters as well. And although the Satan was present in the wilderness, so was God. So was God. God is present in the wilderness. Angels who are with Jesus only serve God. They would only be there to serve the Lord, to minister to him, unless God sent them himself. So God's presence is there. 
there's one final element that is true of both columns. And that is that when we're thrust into a wilderness experience, the future is unknown. Whether you go there because you're thrown there or you go there because you're looking forward to it, you never quite know what the outcome is going to be. We might have reason to hope for the outcomes to be good, but the steps of a wilderness experience are often blurred for us. You know, it doesn't take much imagination for you and I to uh, imagine some wilderness experiences that we might be going through. There's the sudden onset of an illness, whether it's the flu or COVID or something even more chronic or uh, cancer or MS or, or whatever it could be. I mean, these types of uh, this news, when it happens to us, when it's cast upon us, it's a wilderness experience. The death of a loved one is a wilderness experience. Losing a job is a wilderness experience. Retirement can be a wilderness experience. Because while you might be looking forward to it or have been looking forward to it, you can't quite see what it's actually going to be like until you step into it. Isn't that right? That's a wilderness experience. The wilderness is an image of a place of testing. It can be dangerous and uncomfortable In the wilderness, we can be confronted by the things that we easily cover up in our regular lives with distractions and entertainment and abundant food and drink and idle conversation and music. I work so much of the time with my earbuds in. I've always got something going on or a podcast when I'm going for a walk because I don't want to not redeem the time to engage my mind. It was when we get away from that stuff, and sometimes when we don't even ask for it, we're going through a wilderness experience, doesn't it kind of strip away all the things that, you know, that's really not that important in my life. And sometimes in the wilderness experience, the Satan, the accuser, can twist the knife by encouraging us to question our worth, our place in God's family, maybe even our place in the world. Daryl Johnson is fond of saying that God doesn't need to test people because he already knows you really well. But what testing does is it proves and can improve your faith, right? Testing always kind of proves what your faith is really in because we can talk a good talk and then something bad happens and it's like, ah, I'm freaking out or I'm turning to these other things other than God. And it kind of like proves our faith, but it can also improve our faith because going through the wilderness and the testing can, can strengthen us because if we come through the other side and we say, you know what, God was faithful, I'm gonna trust him more next time. Our church is going through a bit of a wilderness experience as a community. We can't know exactly how God is going to provide for us to find a new worship space in the new year. We can't know exactly what this new worship space is going to mean for ministry and discipleship. We can't see the outcome just yet. We can't know exactly what the steps are going to look like. But I'm confident that we're going to be formed in the process. We're going to be informed about what kind of stuff we're made of, and we're gonna be formed tighter as a community is my prayer, 
trusting God more, and rejoicing in what he's going to do in our community. Jesus, in the story, is thrown out into the wilderness, into a place of testing. Why? Maybe to see what he's made of. God knows what he's made of. But in the mysterious reality of God being born in the flesh, of being able to experience real temptation, maybe Jesus needed to know what he was made of in this new existence putting on human flesh. And this brings me to the first interpretation of this ambiguous passage. I think that Jesus is presented to us as going through a vicarious testing. A vicarious testing. You know, the reason that humans and creation are in such a bad state is that we rebel against God a lot. And we often don't trust that he will care for us, that he wants the best for us, And the book of Genesis tells of a story set in a wilderness garden where the Satan tempts a human couple. And they succumb to the lies of the Satan and they rebel against God. And we've pretty much been doing that ever since. What Mark seems to be presenting here in this story is a human who is functioning like humans were designed to function. A human who, even in the wilderness of uncertainty, doesn't buckle to the lies of the Satan, but trusts in God the Father. Just as Jesus passed through the waters of baptism vicariously uh, for Israel and vicariously for the human race, so here in the wilderness, he's standing up to our common enemy on our behalf. Notice how the 40 days he spends in the wilderness uh, alludes to the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. But more comprehensive than Jesus representing Israel in the wilderness is Jesus is much more like a new Adam, a new human that will not deny God, and that is exactly what makes him and no one else qualified to offer redemption to all of us and to inherit this new creation. So that's the, that's the first interpretive lens of this ambiguous passage. But it goes deeper than that, as you might have guessed, because there's two more coming. Uh, the second meaning of this passage is that Jesus is the prototype, an example of what restored humanity can look like. In the, biblical, in the biblical creation story, before human rebellion against God, the people enjoyed some level of harmony with creation, and that included the wild animals. After their rebellion, there's a strain in human relationships between us and creation. Not just the plants and the weeds and things, but, but animals. We treat them poorly in general. They don't like us too much because we treat them poorly, and on it goes and goes. But here we read that Jesus was with the wild animals. The grammar suggests that Jesus was enjoying a sort of pre-fall harmony with these wild beasts. Now hear me loud and clear. We are not to think that before the fall in Genesis 3, we're not to think that before that moment, like animals didn't eat other animals or eat meat. I mean, we have in the fossil record long before mammals Uh, predation in the dinosaurs and all the way up through uh, there's predation like a lion was always a lion and part of what makes a lion a lion is that it it, it eats other animals 
and whatever, like you can take that up with God if you don't like that image, um, but like it's sort of how things work. And if you really dig into how biological concepts work, like our ecosystem would fall apart if we didn't have apex predators to prey on the weak and the diseased and all of the things that some of you know a lot better than I do, but I'm totally into it. Anyway, so we're not to think that there is some time when there weren't predators or, or, or whatever. But before the fall, it's interesting. There's an implication that even though you've got predators and an ecosystem and apex and all of this stuff, that somehow the human beings had a relationship where they weren't too bothered by it, where the human beings seemed to show a mastery over the animals in a healthy way. It's interesting, like, just as an aside, like this little Noah's Ark story where you've got Noah, who he and his family now are the new kind of Adam, right? They're the new start to the new creation. That's what the flood means. It's like the chaos waters of Genesis 1. He's like, I'm going to redo this, okay? So you got chaos and order, and the animals come on, and it never really explains, like, how did he get two of these animals some predatories, some herbivores, some little, some big. You know, like we make stuff up all the time, like, well, God can do anything. Well, like, what if, what if Noah had some of this pre-fall mojo and like, like Adam and Eve, you know, could have command and mastery over them, like, like maybe we were designed to do and designed to be. I don't want to put too much weight on that, but every time we start to see an image of the kingdom and the new creation, there are these images of humans and dangerous animals to us now not being dangerous to us then. And that's interesting to me. All kinds of imaginative examples of this kinds of stuff exist in Jewish literature and contemporary literature. But what is my point about talking about all of this? The scene in Mark implies that with Jesus, we are seeing a human as they were intended to be. One who is dependent on God and restored relationship with creation and the creatures. Notice that Jesus is in harmony with the creation and that God is ministering to him through the angels. The prototype of restored humanity is not independent, not self-reliant. There goes our, our American dream, right? That of just being a self-made person, the image of a restored human being in the Bible is of a person who is reliant on God and needs ministry from others. And I believe that that is what's coming for us, that, that we're not gonna be so healthy and so made new that we don't need each other anymore, but our pride will be so distant from us that we'll actually be okay needing each other and ministering to each other and not keeping track of who's doing more than who. Oh, I love that image. The, if the Satan seeks to sow doubt about our place in the world and about God's love for us, then here we see angels doing the opposite. We may not know what they, what they actually say or do in Mark's gospel, but they're representatives of God and they're for Jesus and he needs them. So Jesus is presented as the prototype of new humanity who vicariously overcomes temptation and who is restored in harmony with the created world and is dependent on God. That's two images that we have. But the third layer 
goes even deeper. The scripture reading tonight was from Isaiah 11, 1 through 6. And in that prophecy, Isaiah speaks of a time, of an age, when there would be unprecedented peace. And this age is described with picture language, metaphor of the wolf lying down with the lamb, of the leopard lying down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little boy, a little child will lead them. All of these pictures are juxtapositions of predator and prey, strong and vulnerable, and there not being any, any more vulnerability, of there not being any more danger, of there not being any more fear. Isaiah is describing something that is unnatural. And it's not so much about a new kind of animal behavior as it is a new kind of world. Something that no human leader, no regular Messiah can accomplish. Isaiah is describing a time when evil powers and empires, by the way, in the ancient world, empires and evil powers and kings and kingdoms and queens and queendoms were often described as beasts. Daniel's beasts, for example, uh, a kingdom of a lion and a leopard and a bear and all these crazy things. That's where these images are coming from. And Isaiah is describing a kind of leadership that results in a world of justice and right relatedness. Isaiah is describing nothing short of an age when we won't need to fear. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think we're afraid of a lot of things. I think we're afraid of a lot of things. I think fear, fear is one of the big motivators in why we do the things we do and think the things we think. And there's some strong people out here that don't fear, like, you know, physical things maybe. But you start just pulling the cords of what do you fear? Loss. Validity. Competency. Your mind. Your place in society. I mean, you start pulling on those strings, we all get afraid. Imagine a world like Isaiah is describing of a time when we do not fear being vulnerable around each other. Imagine a way of living in which no one is actually out to get you. A world where the vulnerable are safe, where people and institutions and societal structures are actually trustworthy and good. The good news of the gospel packed into Mark 1, 12 and 13, two verses, is that Isaiah 11 is coming to pass in the person of Jesus. And this Jesus, whose birth we're celebrating on Christmas, is going to bring that whole new reality to all of creation when he returns. That is our hope in this state of Advent. The rest of Mark's gospel is going to tease out this audacious claim, and we're going to get to explore it together 
uh, in the new year as we walk through that gospel. But as we anticipate celebrating the first advent of Jesus and longing for his vision of peace in the second advent of his return, let our response be with open hearts and open arms. Let us say to this idea, let it be. No, I don't have a Beatles song ready for you, but let it, let it be. May the life and the reign of Jesus, the prototype of restored humanity, animate our lives and grant us faith to receive his coming kingdom. Lord, thank you for this good word. Thank you for the gospel in every word in scripture. I'm thankful as a preacher that it was so easy to see in this one. Um, no Stranger Things series for me tonight, Lord. This is good news. And we thank you for the way that you not only uh, show us uh, a deeper picture of the hope that we can have in you, but you actually uh, began accomplishing these things. The fulfillment of Isaiah 11 in your person. And we long for it, Lord, to come in its fullness here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray then that you would strengthen us in our weariness, that you would stoke the coals of our hope and our faith where those are lacking and getting cold. And Lord, help me to help us to live in faith now as if that reality were coming true in our own time. Help us to make others feel safe. Help us to live without so much fear. Amen.